This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Welcome back to The Forging Table. The mission of Undaunted Life is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. At The Forging Table, you'll see a group of regular guys forging spiritual resilience by digging into God's Word, and we're welcoming all of you to come along on that journey with us. We got the OG, the horn, right here to my right. We got the return appearance of Mr. Dagan Boyd right across me. Look at that fantastic beard, salt and pepper in the house. But who in the world is this guy? I think you have broken the vest barrier on this podcast. That is Mr. Adam Smith. Adam, welcome to the forging table. Pleasure to be here. Thank How you, excited are you I'm right now? Very excited. You, you came up with your boots and your vest and I mean, you're freaking ready, ready to go. All right. So every time somebody's here for the first time, the audience doesn't know who you are. So we have three questions that I always have trouble remembering and it's happening again. Um, three questions you have to answer. Um, how did you become a Christian? How do you like to study the Bible and how does your brain work? So you have like two minutes total to answer those three questions. So ready, set, go and make it interesting. So I became a Christian when I was probably seven years old. I can remember walking into mom and dad's bedroom, looking at mom and saying, mom, I think I'm ready to be a Christian. That's not where I thought that story was going. Nope. Okay. Yep. All right, good. Pretty, pretty, pretty boring. And I remember getting on my knees and praying and I feel like I've been uh, kind of on that path ever since then. So I don't have a you know, miraculous story outside of that. And then what was the second question? Second question was, so how do you like to study the Bible? Like what's your normal method? My normal method would be first thing in the morning. If I don't get it done in the morning, I seem to find that life gets in the way and other things happen. So, uh, get up in the morning, read the Bible, pray about it and, uh, continue my day. How's your brain work? My brain is never off. My brain is always on. It's constantly going. I have a hard time, uh, slowing it down. I would say my brain is very analytical. I'm a math guy, so I like numbers. Anything that is uh, organized type A, that's me. Okay. Well, before we dig into Matthew 19, um, as I was reading through Matthew 19, I was overwhelmed (laughs) with the idea of like a nothing fight. So I don't know about you guys, but in my marriage, we've been married almost 15 years. We have like a whole category of fights in our life of like, this is about nothing. Like, when you go back later, you're both so fired up and you're just like, categorically, we fought about nothing. And so I want you guys to give me either your best or one of your better nothing fight moments, because I'm, I'm going to give you like, while y'all think about it, I'll tell you about one that's constant with my wife and I. So it's not just one thing. My wife and I, if we were, if our entire life was both of us walking up equally to a door, it's one of us grabbing the handle, opening up and being like, after you, and then being like, no, 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 I insist after you. No, 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 I insist after you. And then just doing that for 45 minutes. That is us. We like trip over ourselves to try to make the other person comfortable and to accommodate them. And then we end up just like fighting because it's like, I'm trying to accommodate you. And the other person's like, I'm trying to accommodate you. And then it's like, it's such a stupid fight, but we just can't get past it. We just do it all the time. So that's, that's kind of how we get after it. But for y'all and y'all's wives, cause everybody at the table has been married a long time. What are some good, nothing fights? My fights have never been about nothing. It's about something that turns into something totally different than what it was about. One time we got in a fight about, uh, green onions because I had to go to the store and get green onions. Cause my wife forgot them at the store. 
If you can watch this on YouTube, I am pushing Ryan's face towards the microphone because I I'm lecture him. To, I'm trying not to talk too loud. Every time. No, no, no. It's <laughs> Ryan, it's not talking too okay. loud. It's being consistent. It's Just being consistent. Right there on time. There we yeah, go. There we go. Um, we got in a fight about green onions. It was like, she forgot the green onions. So I was like, I'll go to the store and get the green onions. And so she was mad that she had to go get the green, or I had to go get green onions. And so we had a knockdown drag out about green onions for like 30 minutes to where she like, left and I was like hey if you're leaving you might as well come back with a pizza because dinner's not done don't ever do that <laughs> oh so uh yeah I but was did she come back with pizza no she didn't okay well, she did come back and apologize and then we came to the root cause was because I said no about getting a tree planted in the front yard <laughs> so she's like my friend got one of those trees that I want in the front planted in her front yard and I, I want one planted in our front yard I was like we're not even gonna live here in after a year like we're gonna be moving like I'm we're planning like, we're it not for the next raising guy. kids in this house you know and so I was just like I just thought it was funny but that's what our arguments always come down to like we argue about something but then it's something totally different than what one of us was really arguing about. There's like a deeper meaning to that argument. Solid nothing fight. Green onions. All right. Dagan, yeah. Adam. Well, man, I've got, I've got so many, you know, you bring up food. So now all my stories, I, I start thinking about food. I'm like, man, we fight about food a lot too. One, one thing that is, is it's more of a pet peeve and it's really a nothing thing, but my wife does not throw away leftovers. She doesn't want to open up the Tupperware and smell a week old, whatever it was. So she just leaves it in there. And then I, as like, I'm just trying to prove my point of like, that I'm always the one that, do, that does it. So I just, I continue to leave them in there, right? Kids complain, I complain. She'll say, ah, I can't believe this is still in there and no one will do anything about it. And so we've gotten into arguments about that. Um, but really early, like before we were fighting about nothing, like our first big nothing fight that I remember was when she was pregnant with our first kid and she sent me to the store for Gatorade, right? And like, I, this is the first time I'm dealing with like, the craziness of, of like a pregnant woman. And I come back and, and so she sends me to the, to the convenience store for Gatorade. Why I, th I went to Walmart and I was like, well, I'm just going to get a lot of Gatorade so I don't have to keep doing this. And I come home with like two big orange gallon things of Gatorade. And, and she immediately is like on me. She's like, where have you been? And I was like, well, I went and got Gatorade. And so uh, I, I hold up my Gatorade, both Gatorade things. And she starts bawling and she goes, that's too much. <laughs> so then we're in this argument. Like I'm feeling like I, I am doing this act of service. And then she's like, well, that's too much Gatorade. You didn't do what I asked you to do. You took what I asked you to do and turn it into your own thing. And then uh, that's, that's essentially how we got started. And it's been kind of, you know, we, we've worked on the arguing about nothing ever since. I okay. think the real reason she was crying is because you're holding up Gatorade like it's two participation. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Look what I did. <laughs> See this Gatorade? Look how fancy I am. All right, Smith. You and your wife, you know, she's kind of fiery. So there's got to be some good nothing fights in there. Who, who does dishes in your house? We both do. You yeah, both? We're, we're kind of both. Okay. So I'm about 5% on the dishes. Right? Okay. So when I go do the dishes, like I'm expecting that I did something, you know, I did the dishes <laughs> and it's going to result in something positive and <clears throat> something specifically so, positive specific or, yeah. or positive okay. is going right. to happen. All you right. know, I did this. And so this is going to result. And sometimes when your mind expects like, man, I am such a good man. 
I did the dishes. I put them up. Not only did I did it, but I do it. I did it all right. Exactly how she wants it to be done. I dried them Amen. completely done and you get zero recognition for it. And it's because that's probably what I should be doing. But in my mind, I thought I was going to get a reward and the reward didn't come. And so boom, here goes the, here goes the argument from there. Well, I can just offer this up to you. When you do the dishes, if you'll let me know, I won't give you the kind of reward that you were expecting, but I will give you like a verbal pat on the head. Like, hey man, great job. That helps. You, you did give kind him of a this. Klondike bar, he'll give you the reward. You're There's your for. inside joke for anybody who's been listening to the forging table. Only all you new people, you're not going to know what that is. But the reason why I was thinking through that is because this first section of Matthew 19 it kind of gets into this whole idea of divorce and kind of what divorce was like back in the day and what you could divorce people for, because, you know, we're all kind of telling our stories and, you know, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, they're funny now, but at the time when you're having the green onion fight, and I've heard you tell that story before. So it's like, that's a, a horn family story, right? That's, yeah. so that's what you'll tell your grandkids. It's because we can look back and be like, yeah, that was ridiculous. But when you're in the moment, like you're so fired up and you think you're right and you're righteous and all those different things, but you would never think this is divorceable. Like this is divorceable behavior because I bought the wrong flavor or too much of the Gatorade or I didn't get what I thought from doing the dishes. So uh, Adam, let's go ahead and get your reading out of the way from the beginning. So, cause we got a bunch of great out loud readers here, but we're going to have you make it, make it happen here from the very beginning. So you're going to read Matthew 19 verses one through nine. Got it. Matthew 19, verse 1. And what version are you uh, reading from? Just so everyone knows. NIV. NIV. All right, let's go hit it. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisee came to, see, came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning of the Creator made them male and female? And said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God hath joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So there's a lot to talk about here in this first section. Uh, it was obviously a trap. You know, constantly the Pharisees and Sadducees were trying to catch Jesus in a trap, trying to get him to answer a particular way. And obviously it never really worked out for them. But <clears throat> Rabbi Hillel, he, you know, he taught that a man could divorce his wife literally for any reason. Like that was kind of an undercurrent for this that I didn't know until I was really digging into it for the forging table, that that's why he brought this up. And that's why it was brought up in the way that it was brought up, because there were Hillelites that were basically like, yeah, if your wife, I think it was actually in his writing, like if she burned dinner, like that was a divorceable offense. But then Jesus, he's constantly kind of moving the goalposts as to kind of what is acceptable behavior or uh, orthopraxy or those types of things. But with this, with this whole concept, you guys can comment about whatever you want to do, but I really just want to have this overall talk about divorce because you would expect that divorce inside the church would be different, uh, at least statistically speaking, than divorce outside the church. But when you look at divorce rates, they're essentially the exact same. And I guess the problem that I see is it's clear from scripture that if you marry, if your marriage ended in divorce and it wasn't because of death or sexual immorality or adultery, then when those two people get married, that they are 
committing adultery in that moment. Some people say, okay, they committed adultery, but then it's not adultery going forward. Some people are arguing that it's adultery every time. They're literally living in sin like someone in a homosexual relationship. I guess for me, like my parents are divorced. I, I know some of y'all, maybe your parents are divorced, so they're still together. But like, that's such a black eye for the church, in my opinion, that, you know, we can't hold our marriages together any better. And so people are like, well, I don't become a Christian. Like their, their marriages aren't better. They wear stupid clothes. They listen to crappy music. Like, it's just kind of one of those things. Like, I don't think it's talked about enough. If that makes sense. I think the funny thing to look at is look at Rabbi Hillel. I mean, he kind of brought that pragmatic approach to Judaism. And we're seeing that pragmatic approach being moved in through the church nowadays. And so divorce isn't really that frowned upon anymore. But also love is no longer a verb, even with Christians. It's not an action. It's a feeling. And when we, we go about thinking that our marriage is a feeling of love and not a, an act of doing something, I think that's when it turns into the divorce conversation, which I think here Christ kind of went with uh, Rabbi, I think it's uh, Shammai. Yeah, Shammai yeah, would have right. been the more rigid approach where he said only through sexual immorality. Mm. So, um, and Shammai know. was like a contemporary of Hillel, yeah. but like had a much different view. Yeah. And so I think that's what makes us look at, you know, like look at, look at Christ talking about divorce here. And divorce is one of those things where, you know, we, they've, they've taken a pragmatic approach to it. They're dealing with a pragmatic approach to it right now. And these teachers, these rabbis are trying to trap Jesus in this. And look how Jesus comes back. He comes back with the rigid position of there shouldn't be divorce at all. What God put together may no man pull apart other than sexual immorality. Right. I agree that they were trying to trap him, but do you think they even cared what his answer to the question was? I think they just posed the question. They said, the goal was to test him. I don't know that they cared what his answer was going to be. I think it was for political reasons. They're mm-hmm. trying to pit him against Hillel or Shammai. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think it was more of a political question that they asked him. Because you're going to, regardless of his answer, you're going to peel off either yeah. Hillelites or Shammaiites or something like that. You know? But I, mm-hmm. What I think is awesome is he, he stayed with the word. Mm-hmm. He as, stayed, as he normally does. He stayed with the biblical tradition of marriage, of what God wants. He said, you know, I know this is, we're going to go over this later in the, in the, uh, in the chapter, but he says that Moses gave this to you because your hearts are hardened, Mm -hmm. you know? So like Moses didn't even want this because he knows God doesn't want this, but this is what you guys wanted and your hearts are hardened to it. So he made it, he said, okay, fine. Sexual immorality. Right. So just kind of drew a different line. Yeah. And Kyle, going back to your comment on, you know, the divorce rates in church and outside of church, it's, you know, to Ryan just brought it up because your hearts were hard and stubborn. There are being a Christian and going to church doesn't make your hard less hard. Your, your, your heart is just as hard. There's a lot of stubborn people who go to my church. You know what I mean? The, the difference is that those stubborn people have accepted the free gift of grace. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, like that sacrifice has been laid for them. They've received it, but it doesn't make them any less sinful. You know, it's like they're, they're still willfully disobedient people that I go to church with every week. So it's like those, those are the same, we're all the same people. Um, but obviously like getting together every week, uh, accountability, teaching, like being around and into the word, you would think that the rates would be different. Um, but all the more reason that like Jesus had to come because, you know, they gave us a list of 10 commandments that, well, well they're not going to follow those. So we're going to have to have, you know, we're going to have to do something a little more dramatic. Um, you know, I, I can't understand as a Christian, as somebody who 
I've got a network of people I would fall to and frankly, like kick my butt if I started to do some things that were leading down that path. But that's because I go to church. Right. So, and so you're the in fact community. That, right. That some people can be in church and have that. And some people can go to that same church and not like maybe that's the difference between some of this happening to the church going. And, and you mentioned accountability and you mentioned being with a certain group of people that are going to hold you accountable. I think a lot of churches today don't have that. And a lot of people might be in the pews and be willing to listen to the pastor, but they're not going to call you out when you're doing something wrong. And they're not going to call you out when you're mistreating your, when, when you're mistreating your wife or call you to the carpet when you're like, you know what, I'm thinking maybe she's not the right one. Maybe I made a mistake. That needs to stop. You know, so. Well, I, I think you're right. Even deeper than that, I feel like, maybe I'll disagree. I feel like divorce has become a junior varsity sin to most people. Mm-hmm. So everyone kind of has their pet sin. It's almost always the sin that they don't have any struggle with at all. So their pet sin might be drunkenness because they've never had a, a bent or a propensity to over drink. Maybe uh, it's uh, homosexuality because you know, they're super duper heterosexual or something like that. But I feel like it's not even discussed. And you have these pastors all over the country that are just, they're performing second marriages for people without any regard for how these people's first marriages ended. Because obviously, if, if your spouse has died, you can get remarried without committing adultery. If your marriage ended because of sexual immorality or adultery, then you can get remarried. But also, Jesus draws a line on sexual immorality that if you've thought about a woman and like lusted after her and maybe masturbated thinking about her or something like that, you have committed adultery. Yeah. So by that standard, I guess all of us can get divorced. I, I guess I'm just shocked all the time whenever we don't seemingly see the church stand up and be like, look, that you can't marry this person because you are still cleaved to someone else. Am I, does that make sense? It does, but I think what we have to look at is that who's wanting the divorce? Like, if I were to lust after a woman and masturbate and my wife decides that she doesn't want to divorce me, she wants to work it out, I can't say, no, I, I, I had the sin of immorality, so mm-hmm. I have to divorce you. I want to move on. Like, no, she's got to make that decision whether she wants to stay with me and be married to me in which Christ would want that. He would want that. He would want me to turn to my sin and repent and work towards my marriage and hope that my wife will stick around for that. But she does have, she has the, the obligation if she wanted to, to leave me. And, and I think that gets lost. Like you're, yeah. you're making the exact right point. What gets lost is that what, what Christ would want. It's I'm not impugning motive to, to Christ or anything like yeah. that, but what they want is reconciliation. Yeah. They want you to repent, turn towards him and reconcile. Some of the most incredible stories that I know of about people personally is deep levels of adultery, you know, mm-hmm. even like children out of wedlock type of thing. And then instead of just taking the easier, but biblically defensible road of divorce, they've rebuilt their marriage and rebuilt their life and rebuilt their families. And so that like, that's, that's a really good story, but yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point. I think there's some direct parallels. We'll get to this when we start talking about the difficulty of riches and the rich man and the, him not being able to give that up. Uh, same thing with adultery and pornography and those kinds of things. Well, people going to Moses, I, I was kind of reading through this and it's like, well, where did Moses get this? Like, well, I'm going to weigh it and then I'm going to kind of figure out what I'm, what, what's permissible and what's not. But going back to an earlier verse where it says, you know, he or she uh, they'd be joined together and they become one flesh. Like that's like the, 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 the process of consummating the marriage through sexual intercourse. Right. 
So, so I can see Moses getting to the point where it's like, okay, well, that's becoming one flesh. That's the act that you take to become one flesh with somebody else. So if you, outside of that joining, go and have sexual intercourse with someone else, you have, you have severed the spiritual contract with your spouse, and you have gone and created a one relationship with someone else. Right. And so it's like, I can see the wheels turning in Moses's head, right? Like, okay, well, that's, that's, this is what they're bound to. Someone's chosen to sever that. Now you're with that person. And now I think it's okay for the person who was wronged to go get married again without committing adultery. Right. Right. And it's, so I've heard people describe as well, like premarital sex or, you know, sex outside of marriage, you're creating soul ties with these people that you're not giving a soul level of dedication to. Mm. Right. And so we obviously live in a time now where if you only have sex with one person in your life that you, like that doesn't, it doesn't even happen anymore. It's like trying to find a pink and purple spotted unicorn. Like you're just not going to really find that. But one thing that's also in here that I don't feel like it's talked about enough, maybe it was different in kind of how y'all grew up, but I really didn't think about it until I was going through this. In, in verses five and six, when you're looking at, you know, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. That's leaving and cleaving, right? So I forget what version that would be, probably from the King James or something. And the two shall be one f- flesh, which you were just talking about, Dagan. And they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. That gets read at pretty much every single wedding, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. My wife's a professional photographer. She shot weddings for like a decade. So I've been to a bunch of weddings and that gets read. But apparently no one actually believes that. And the reason is, is because there are so many disputes that are caused by in-laws, by the expectations of in-laws, right? And it's like, well, hey, our family does this. And then the other side is like, well, our family does this. This is what we do for Christmas. This is what we do for Thanksgiving. And what nobody seems to recognize or understand is like, no, no, no. He didn't become part of her family. She didn't become part of his family. They are a family now, right? But then you have the overzealous mother-in-law that's like, no, y'all have to live close to us, you know, because the babies need to be at us and this is the school that they need to go to and this is the sports that they're going to be allowed to play and this is when y'all are coming over uh, for Easter and this is those types of things. And you just acquiesce and acquiesce and acquiesce. And I'll tell a quick story and then I'll shut up because I really want you guys to get in on this. But I was listening to a pastor that was talking about, he had some uh, tradesmen at his house working like a carpenter or a plumber, I can't remember. And he was talking about this story about this guy was married. They had a kid, but they were having problems in their marriage. And when they would have problems in their marriage, the wife would not talk to him. The wife would talk to her mother, right? So massive red flag warning signs, right? But they had, you know, one of those big, not a nothing fight, but like a super substantive fight, right? And so she takes off with the kids and goes to mom and dad's house, right? And so the husband comes home, sees that his wife and children are not there, and he knows exactly where to go. He goes to the house. Who greets him at the door? The mother-in-law. And she says, "Um, my daughter is not going to be communicating with you directly anymore, hands him a card to an attorney and says, you will communicate with my daughter through this attorney if you would like to communicate with her. And he can see his wife behind mother-in-law, right? Like this is diabolical, right? Mm -hmm. He can see wife behind and she's crying and she's blah, blah, blah. And he's just like not even paying attention to mother-in-law. He's just talking to his wife through her. And he's like, look, you need to come home. We need to work this out. And she just goes, I just can't, I just can't leave my family. And he's like, I am your family. Our son and daughter are your family, right? 
But so many people don't think that way when they get into marriage. They think that you have become a part of their extended family. And man, that just made such a difference for me because we just do that naturally because my wife and I live in a city where we don't have family. And so we leaved and cleaved, I guess, right? Or left and cleft. Like that's just something that we did. But from you, from you guys' perspective, like have you ever thought about it that way? Because I guess I've never had to because we don't have like meddling in-laws on either side. You know what I mean? I mean, for us, my, my in-laws aren't really meddling. Uh, my parents aren't meddling either. Um, I grew up in a family, like I'm the oldest of five. And so we kind of just did things. Ah, Dagan and I have something in common. You're oldest of five I'm too? I'm the middle of five. Oh, middle, middle of, of five. five. I'm the, of the five. Is, yeah. uh, that's... So I'm the oldest of five. And we just kind of had our Christmases and holidays and all that stuff together as like a family. Sometimes we'd go to extended family. Uh, but my wife, her side of the family, they did everything with extended family, like aunts, uncles, second cousins, third cousins. And I think when we got married, that was kind of an, an argument that we kind of had. We still kind of have that argument because she's very much wants to be with her family and do things with her family. And I, and I love her mom and dad, like her dad and I smoke cigars and drink whiskey and talk theology all the time. Like he's a, he's a great mentor of mine, but sometimes I'm just like, you know what? I can handle your family. I just can't handle the whole other side of the family and we got to work on something like with that you know like i want your family to be involved i want my kids to see their grandparents and their cousins and know their family but like we are our we are our own family in itself and so we've got to find a balance there um so we we got in some arguments about that she had a uh, she was a little bit controlling early in our marriage my wife was about my relationship with my parents um you know she thought i should be with her more and even when she was gone and hanging out with her friends i go to my parents house and she get upset with me about that. And like, she'll look back at that now. She's like, I was just, you know, I was just controlling and I was, you know, just married. We didn't have know the gospel back then either because we were living with each other. You know, there's another thing you want to talk about church. We went through our uh, whole marriage uh, thing within church and we were living together and they knew it. They never said anything to us at all, you know? And so, you know, of all the environments you yeah. would expect someone to check you, yeah. you know? So we didn't get checked at all. So early in our marriage, we had those problems because we didn't know what a godly marriage was. We never read Matthew 19, mm. you know? And so, yeah, we got, we got in arguments about family, but yeah, you got to leave and cleave from your family. Your kids should know their family. They should know everything, but you've got to be able to set some boundaries with family. Right. What about you guys? I think that was probably one of the best forms of premarital counseling that we got was to be careful about having your parents be an advisor for you when it comes to strife between your husband and wife, uh, between your spouse. Um, there have been many times when Cassidy and I have had discussions and we have intentionally made sure that those discussions have not made it to either of our parents because mm-hmm. we've had, um, we j- I know every time if I was to bring it to my mother, she's going to take my side. Of course. It doesn't matter what I say. She's going to agree to agree with me and Cassidy the exact same way with her mother. So I think that was uh, some of the better advice that we've got because we're both so close to our family. Dagan, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. I think expectations, one, like the, not enough people are doing premarital counseling the right way, right? They're doing the easy, like I'm going to go in and we're just going to, we're going to learn a little bit about each other, but they're not really like drilling into anything. Yeah, like, right. Hey, or where it's like in a group. Ours was in a group. Yeah. There were six couples in there. It's like, what the heck are we doing? Man, read like, a book by the parents. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And, and Michelle and I did some, uh, uh, Scott and Marseille Hennigan in, in Norman, Oklahoma did our premarital counseling. And about half the time, Michelle would cry. Like, you know, and I'm, and I'm like, I'm getting thrown under the bus every time we go, like almost like walking in saying, listen, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta take my side this week. Right. Like, but, 
But what looking back on it and even going through it, Scott was like, listen, these are conversations that are worth having now. So you know the expectations of what happens later. Yeah. And and then the real like on like on fighting over Christmas and stuff, like 20 somethings getting married, they know zero. They have zero, right. right? So it's like it's hard to leave and cleave, especially when you're the wife. When you when you're married to this guy who if you just had Christmas with the two of you, you're not getting anything, right? right? So half the time it's like, well, where are we gonna go get good stuff? Right. But it's all about being in agreement and um seeking that compromise. And you know, too many people don't do that. And the mom that you gave an example of standing in the doorway, I guarantee she was chewing out kindergarten teachers because her kid didn't get oh yeah, whatever, right? Yeah. That that's been a pattern that girl's whole life. Right. And, and so and and then on the opposite end of that, like if I got two daughters and when they get married and like some 27 year old schmutz is like saying, no, 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 we're not coming to your house for whatever. I'm You're going to want to kill them. That's right. Like <laughs> right. I get it. Yeah. But at the same time, like, like I want, I as a parent want to be in a position. So it's, it's, it's all of that. It's, Hey, here's, here's, you're going to get married. You guys need to go find out what it's going to be like, your expectations for each other. It's almost good to include parents on premarital counseling sessions to say, have somebody look at the mom and dad of each side and say, here's your new role. Right. And it's like, Hey, know your role, shut your mouth. And so like at a certain point, it's like, if I ask you for advice, it's because I want your advice. But another thing here, like you know, this isn't indicative of every guy, but a lot of guys are okay with at least the concept of protecting their spouse. Maybe they don't know anything about firearms or fighting, but they're at least okay with the concept of protecting their spouse physically. But one thing they don't do is protect their spouse when they talk to their friends or family, right? So going back to what you're talking about, Adam. uh, So Kelsey does, this is going to be shocking to you guys and everyone in my audience. I can get kind of fired up. I get kind of angry and it's always about super righteous things and it's never sinful, but every now and then, you know, I'll cross the line and do something stupid or say something dumb or like overreact or something like that. And Kelsey would be well within her rights to go to her mother who is lovely. She is a lovely woman and complain about me specifically something that I did, but she won't do it. She won't do it with her best friends. I, I will say or do something around her family or around her friends that was over the line or too rough or, or too something like that. And she will take my side and say, yeah, he's, he's just kind of tired. He's kind of stressed out right now. Like, you know, everything's fine. Like that type of thing. That is practicing protecting your spouse in a different way because you're right, Adam. Your parents should take or are probably going to take your side every single time to the detriment of your spouse because they're just going to be like, oh, God, I knew she was a diva, you know, or, or something like that. They're going to be able to uh, confirm their prior ideas or presuppositions about your spouse if you allow that to happen. And then if you do have one of those knockdown drag out, I'm going to sleep at my parents' house type conversations. Do you not think all those things that you dropped on your parents about your spouse is going to come up? Mm-hmm. Like, it's just you literally created fodder for that situation. I want to know whose parents have their side. My parents never have my side. Near oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. My dad's like, man up. Uh, Ryan, you're being stupid again. My mom's like, I can hear where you're coming from, honey, but this is what she's dealing with. Oh, and so I'm just like, oh man. So actually, like I will say, we don't talk to each other's families about each other like that. But like, we'll go to her dad or her mom about certain certain things, Um, and that's fine. I mean, as long as as long as it's not gossip and it's coming about to like bring somebody down, right? Exactly. 
All right, the, the we're never going to get through Matthew 19 if I don't get us uh, going, so we need to keep going here. But before I do, I did just want to remind you guys that we have partnered up with Crossway because a lot of you guys have asked, hey, I want to start a forging table, but what the heck do I do? So if you're watching this on YouTube or Rumble, that stack of books on the end of the table is what we put together for you. This is not a paid commercial. This is just for y'all's edification. But those five books, you can get that entire stack of books for 50% off. So thank you to Crossway for doing that. So that is the ESV Men's Study Bible, the Book of Roman Scripture Journal, study edition, New Morning Mercies, which is a devotional by Paul David Tripp, a book by Douglas O'Donnell, which uh, called The Beauty and Power of Biblical Exposition, which kind of helps you understand the different categories. And then an amazing book that Ryan uh, initially got for me called Family Shepherds by Vody Bauckham. It's a must read for anyone that's a father or a husband. And also just a three-step process. We made this super easy for you guys. This is in the show notes. So if you're driving down the road, don't pull over or try to do this while you're driving, but go to crossway.org, create your free Crossway Plus account. You, it's, it's a completely free thing. Put all five of those books in your cart. The links to that will be in the show notes. And then just use this code BSSP50 to get 50% off at checkout. That is Bravo Sierra Sierra Papa 50 to get 50% off at checkout. So Ryan, if you wouldn't mind hit verses 10 through 12, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that. So 10 through 12 of Matthew 19. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive it, receive it. So we can, we can break down a lot of things here, but just to kind of keep the, the flow going because we have more to discuss, I want to discuss this one sentence or one phrase in verse 10. This is the disciples saying, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. I feel like young men believe this hook, line, and sinker. Now, they don't believe it because the disciples believed it. They believed it because the culture has told them to believe it. Hey, man, don't get married. She's going to take half your stuff. Hey, man, don't, don't get married. Definitely don't have you know, a kid with this chick because then you're going to be paying out the butt for child support and potentially alimony. Man, just, just do you like, you know, get some condoms and, and have a great time. And like this, this idea of being this lifetime bachelor and just sleeping with women and driving sports cars and going on vacations and just doing all these different things, man, it looks really dope on Instagram. It really does. But then it's completely vapid. And I feel like young men, especially they follow, I, I can't remember the name of that guy. I thought it was going to come to me. Uh, the guy that, um, he was uh, arrested in Romania for like pimping women and all that. Vince uh, Piero's so. talked about him a bunch. Anyway, it's going to come to me. Everybody in the audience is screaming right now. I know who you're talking about, but there are young men that are looking at men like that, leading that Ferrari and, and sexy model lifestyle, right? And they're, that's what they're going for. And they're not looking for a woman that they can settle down with, the one woman that they're going to have sex with for the rest of their life. And they're, they're just taking this idea that I'm just going to be single. The, the idea of marriage, man, it's too hard. Like we don't do hard things anymore. Like we look to get the easy button. We look to get the fast track to everything that we do in life. And so, so many young men that I talk to are just terrified of getting married and for good reason, because of what we were talking about earlier, divorce rates in the church. You're like, Hey man, it's going to be different. And then it's like, uh, I can read, I can read a chart and this shows me that it's not. So, so give me, give me some feedback on that because like, it's so depressing to see that 2000 years ago, this is where some of the apostles defaulted to. And here we are. And it's not any different. 
think about the car screeching moment where verse three, it starts with the Pharisees. Jesus is answering the Pharisees. And then we get to verse 10. And who's the first person that talks when Jesus is done? The disciples are like, uh, what? Yeah. You know, it starts with the Pharisees, and then here comes the disciples saying, uh, maybe we shouldn't get married if that's the case. And we've already talked about this, but some of it has the, to do with the cultural issues where a man could have divorced a woman at any time then. And that was a one-way street. Right. One-way street. The man had the power, the woman didn't. And I think the disciples at this time were used to that. That's what they were uh, accustomed to. And so they feel like they have to chime in when Jesus is trying to answer the Pharisees. Here comes his own followers to say, wait a minute. Yeah, what they're saying actually makes sense, Jesus. Right. One again, this is a yeah. Roman context as well, where if you're not familiar, a head of household in Rome, you have the power of life and death over your entire family. Mm-hmm. Right. So if your wife did something that displeased you, you could kill her and you would not be arrested or or, or put in jail for murder. Mm-hmm. Like you had complete control and say over the life of your family. If your two year old just was was being too ridiculous, like you could literally kill them or, or put them out to where, you know, the, the elements would kill them or something like that. Like this was common practice back then as well. That's another thing that kind of undergirds this, a story like this. Well, and you know, Jesus is answering them. They're saying, Hey, if this is the case, then it's better to not get married. And instead of Jesus being like, yeah, you're right. That's like being married's tough. What can I say? You know, um, he, he kind of contrasts it and it's like, he warns them. It's like, well, yeah, you know what? Like, Married is for some people. Single is for some people too. Single's not for everybody. You can have just as much trouble being single if God meant for you to get married and you're not, you know what I mean? Like, um, so he's, I think he's kind of telling on both sides. It's like, you're made for a reason and that's what you need to go with and stick with. And they're, and I think they're just hearing all the negatives thinking, well, I don't want to do that. But I think Jesus basically came in and was like, you know, talking about celibacy and all that. And I can, I can see the, the disciples going, oh, that sounds bad too. <laughs> all these options are terrible. Like, what, what are, our, what are we going to do here? Is this one of those chapters that uh, just whispers? Jesus is just whispering about sexual immorality. Oh gosh. And all these people, these prominent <laughs> pastors that are just like, oh, you know, God only whispers yeah, about it, certain things. That's, that's the thing we have to look at. You know, um, if you're just taking this one verse of 10 and it's just better not to marry, we take it to modern times. Someone's just like, I'm not going to get married. I'm just going to go out there and slay things. You know, I don't know if that's the right term to use, but you know, I think we all get it. But, but Christ is saying like, when he talks about the eunuchs here, he's not talking about somebody who's doesn't have testicles. He's talking about somebody who's, who's taken a vow of celibacy is chosen not to have sexual, um, have sex period They're They've taken that and to do that. I mean, for me to do that, that would be very hard, you know, to take a vow of celibacy. You know, I mean, that's just one of those things that we have to look at here is if we're going to look at at where we're at, you know, personally in our lives that we are going to take that vow of singleness. You can't go out there and have sex all the time. You're taking a vow saying if you're a Christian, you're taking a vow and saying, you know, I'm going to leave a live a life that uh, a single life of celibacy. And so I think that's even harder. That's harder to do than being married. And so you have to have some special, you know, how do you want to say it? I mean, God's like got a special really calling. You have to for have that. Yeah, thank you. You have to have a special calling for that because well, it would be very hard. Very few people actually have that calling. And so people that 
like I got an email from a guy that said, my friend said he's going to stop working out because he wants to spend more time in Bible study. And I was like, what it sounds like is your friend is fat and wants an excuse to stay that way because it's like, there's time to do that. That dude better become the second coming of Billy Graham or become like some sort of deep theologian because at the end of the day, it sounds like this is just something I don't want to do. And so I'm going to make it seem holy that I'm not doing it. So some people are like, I'm taking a vow of singleness. And I was like, you don't get to make that call. Is God calling you to a life of singleness? Because Paul was, the apostle Paul was single. Some of these missionaries are single because they're going to places where they're going to chop the heads off of your kids and rape your wife before they kill her too. And like, it's, you know, they're, someone's going to go there solo. And yeah. so most of these men are not called to that. By the way, Andrew Tate is who I was thinking right. of earlier. He's kind of that, that example of that guy where he says some things that are right, but Andrew Tate is long on description, but he's very short when it comes to giving very sound advice as to what to do. Cause his solution to everything is make money, be a baller, slay hoes like that. Like that's his answer to everything. Came somewhere. It came from right. <laughs> that's right. Andrew Tate. So see, this we even got sounds, a guy here. We have a disciple of Andrew Tate. Sitting I am not a disciple right of Andrew Tate. I do not know who that guy is. He okay. sounds like a piece of trash. Well, he pretty much is. And okay. so uh, that, that's kind of where yeah. you get to with that. Okay, so let's keep this uh, moving along. Dagan, if you could read 13 through 15. And children were brought to Jesus so that he might place his hands on them and pray. But the disciples reprimanded them. But he said, leave the children alone and do not forbid them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. After placing his hands on them, he went on from there. So in what version was that? reading uh the amplified okay amplified niv esv so we got all all the bases covered here you NASB. can read from the nasby for the rest I'll of the time the okay all right so we're gonna anybody want to read from the message no uh, any takers no all right good nope. um so the thing about this for me i don't want to spend a lot of time on this because i want to get to the the rich young ruler but i i feel like i'm not so naive and cocksure as to believe that anytime these disciples make a really stupid, obvious mistake that I wouldn't have been right there with them making the same exact mistake. That's why I love Peter so much. Cause he's such a moron. And I'm just like me too, man, Peter, you're my boy. Like, it's just, that's kind of how it goes. And if Jesus were being bothered in my opinion by a bunch of kids, I'd be like, get someone, get these freaking kids out of here, man. Like they're bothering the son of God. And it's just what a rebuke, what a soft, but loving rebuke from Jesus to be like, Oh man, let the kids come to me. And cause I don't really have the heart for kids, you know, service and like, Hey, let's, let's go volunteer in the ki the kids department or something like that. But this is just a good reminder that kids might be annoying, but Jesus likes them. So maybe I should try to like them too. I love that he used kids because I think most people can correlate that to obviously kids should have the chance to be close to Jesus. But it, I think it was also used to, it, he didn't mean just children. It's the less of these. It could be somebody who's unclean. It could be somebody who's a Gentile, somebody who's uh, not a believer. You know, it doesn't have to just be children. For sure. I like it when he says, for to, su or, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. You know, children are, you know, they're, they're young. They're not able to exercise their personal faith. And Christ looks at them and says that they make up the kingdom of heaven. And it, I think it just kind of shows God's mercy. Um, God's mercy for those who, you know, even though we are, are a part of sin. Not all of us are culpable at sin at that, at their age. And so I think it just shows his mercy and God's mercy towards, towards children. I think it's pretty awesome. Absolutely. Dagan, you got anything to add on kids? Uh, yeah, I just, I, I see there's a metaphorical kind of thing here. And then there's a literal where the, you know, the metaphorical is, you know, believers need to have total trust and dependence on their heavenly father, just like kids do on their parents. Right. So there's that like, Hey, this is, 
this is kind of a metaphor here. And then there's the literal, like kind of Ryan alluded to, I believe you're talking about like almost like the age of accountability where yeah. it's like, yeah, it's like, hey, hey, these, these kids are in a better spot than you are. Yeah. Like if these, if everybody died today, these kids are definitely coming with me, right? Yeah. I think that's a good discussion too, because Adam, like your story, anytime I hear a story about someone that comes to Christ as a four or five, six, seven year old, something like that, my default mechanism is mm, like that kid still isn't sure if it's a fart or not. Like, you know, like as they're going through their day, like how can they know that Jesus died for their sins? Like, how can they know that? And I always have to check myself to be like, dude, you're assuming the judgment seat of God, you moron. And so it's like, I have my own little Peter moment. And that's, uh, that's just something I try to remind myself as well, because we don't know the age of accountability. Like, uh, it terrifies me to think, you know, I've got a three-year-old and a one-year-old and what if Jesus comes back and these little idiots that didn't have time to like figure out what sin was and like, what's going to happen, but it's not up to me. So last word on this. Yeah. I think it's great to look, I I look at my eight-year-old and he knows some of the things that he does is sinful. Mm. And he knows that there, he needs sanctification in that. But there's also some sins that he doesn't even know about yet. Sure. So, you know, the age of accountability, it's, it's a tough one to look at. But, you know, once you're filled, he's filled. He's a Christian. He's, he believes. And um, there we go. Thank you. Okay. He's a Christian. Just he believes. Mike. There we go. Yep, okay. There we go. And, you know, he knows right from wrong and what Christ would expect from him. Right. So that, that's good. And, and you and I have had a lot of conversations about that. Cause we've talked about on the show, like when, when your eldest was uh, baptized, like we were sitting right next to each other, how mm-hmm. big and cool of a thing that was. So I got to remember just to keep checking myself when it comes to that. Uh, Adam, let's get into the rich young ruler. So let's read verses 16 through 22. Verse 16. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Jesus replied, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do, what do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go. Sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. So one thing I wanted to talk about from the beginning is uh, whenever he's like, hey, man, I kept all those commandments that I've so clearly broken over and over because it's impossible not to. Hey, man. Yeah, yeah. Jesus. Cool. I did all that. What else do I need to do? And interesting here, Jesus doesn't immediately call him out for obviously being a liar or being at least aloof to his, his own, uh, his own sin. He immediately goes to the next thing that he knows will expose him because he's got a lot of stuff because some people will read this and take the wrong thing, which is like, Oh, if you're rich and you sell your possessions, you'll, you'll get to go to heaven. That's obviously not what he's saying here. Like you're not going to gain salvation, but it's going to expose him to a sin that he has not reckoned with before. Cause you can tell by his reaction, he hasn't reckoned with this ever because in this day, in this Jewish context, and then I'll, I'll let you guys flow on this in this Jewish context. If you had a lot of money and had a lot of influence, that means you were blessed mm-hmm. that, that mean God, 
you know, God loved you or your parents were awesome and they passed on generational blessings to you. And like, if you were destitute and poor and crippled, that meant you and or people in your family line were ratchet. And so God was basically punishing you for being so ratchet. And so you can just tell this guy just walked around in constant opulence. And then all of a sudden Jesus just smacked him across the face with his own ignorance. I I mean, I love this whole story and that's only part of it. We'll get into the rest of it here, but I just, I just wanted to pause and just talk about that some. Well, I, I love that. I mean, you talk, he comes up, you know, really cocky, obviously, you know, like you, you say that and Jesus is like, oh, you got to keep the commandments. And Jesus like, doesn't just say you keep the commandments. Jesus like names them. Yeah. Right? Let's list them off. You got to do this and you got to do this. And the guy's like, yeah, but I've done all that. And then what Jesus goes and picks on him for is his wealth is because it, it's like wealth has become your God. You know, you shall have no other gods before me. Wealth was this dude, was this dude's God. And so what Jesus' response was, was, Bro, not only have you kept them all, but like you didn't even keep the first one. Like I <laughs> right. just named them all and you said you kept them all. And let's, okay. So it's like, what else could Jesus have just gone down the list with this dude mm. of this and this and this and, and breaking them all? Um, I just thought that was hilarious. It was like, like, you know, he just picks the first one and the dude's like, I'm out. I can't do it. <laughs> yeah. Do not pass go. Isn't it interesting that it was primarily deeds and works related? He's looking for a list. He's looking for a I've done all of these things, but there's got to be more. There's got to be more. What other things can I check off my list in order to be worthy? And there, there is no other thing because that's not how you become saved. Well, and that's what you and I and your wife, Cassidy, have talked about that before because we are list makers. I'm the type of guy that will make a to-do list and I will have done something already, but I will write it on the to-do list just so I can draw a box and write a check mark in it, right? Because that's how much I like completing and doing things. And so the type A doers, like... They love lists of things to do and they will disregard things that they think have already been checked off. So like to Dagan, what you were saying, he's listing these things off that you have not checked these boxes, but he's skipped it. Cause he's like, Oh no, no, no. I already got it. <clears throat> like imagine cause, cause you're, you're a CPA. Imagine a brand new CPA being like, <clears throat> Oh, I've done a tax return before this next one's got to be just like the last one. Right? right. So I'm just going to buzz right through it. Like what a silly assumption, but this guy's making the exact thing. All right, let's hit the rest of the story. Or did you have something to add on that, right? I, I was just thinking, you know, what he's missing here is a heart change. Um, I mean, Christ talks about it in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, everything has to do with the heart and the mind and, and where you're going in that realm. And like you guys just said, he's doing the lists. And those lists, you know, it just works. And he has no heart change because Jesus actually tries to go after his heart by telling him to give his possessions to the poor and follow him. But is he truly following God? Because Jesus is God. And so no. And in, so. And in verse 21, he's, Jesus says, if you want to be perfect. Yeah. He's mm. crushing him with that. He's like, oh, okay. Then, so you see he, what he does. Yeah. 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 He does want to be if perfect. He, he wants to be perfect. And he says, why do you call me perfect? Right. Only God is perfect. Exactly. Mm. It's like, so. He's totally missing it. Yeah. Like, well, if you want to be perfect, this is what you got to do. And it's yeah. impossible. Well, and he continues that it's, it's, he doesn't say, go give your stuff to the poor. He says, go sell all this junk and give the money to the poor, just immediately diminishing the value of this yeah. dude's stuff, yeah. right? Like they don't want your stuff. They want the money. Go sell your stuff and give the money away because that, that's more valuable. And also anyway. God doesn't want your stuff for your money. That's he right. wants you. He wants every last bit of you. And so he's trying to burn off all those other pieces that are unnecessary. Remember where Jesus is heading, where he's going. He's going to the cross. Back to here. Jerusalem, right. Going to the yeah. cross. So... You are not saved by works. You are saved by what he's about to do. Yep. And so I think, well, let's just go ahead and and close out. So Ryan, if you would hit verses 23 through the end, which would be verse 30. 
And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When disciples heard this, they were astonished and said, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. I think that was the best time I ever read on this program. Dude, that was nice. I feel like Matt Grassmeyer. Like I would, just entered my body. Did you go through the end of verse 30? <laughs> oh, is it through the end of verse 30? Oh, oh you loser. Oh, you you I got too so cocky. sure of yourself. Like Deshaun Watson going in for a touchdown uh, and throwing it right behind the line. Man. I thought you were going to talk yeah. about the fact that he was uh, getting massages on all parts of his body. Oh, but it, yeah, you could keep it, a, I even yeah. said the wrong guy. It's yeah. not even Deshaun Watson. You, listen, you better you, not Leon let this something. deal. That's what I was say. Don Beebe, the, the greatest <laughs> receiver in the history of the Buffalo Bills. Leon Lett is celebrating on his way to the, to the end zone. So way to go, yeah. Leon Lett. Yeah. Come on. Well, you're going to screw up so much in this last part. So bad. Read through the end. Come on. Don't mess up. Then Peter responded to him and Peter responded and said to him, behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you that you followed me. The regeneration got in my head. When the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or children or farms on account of my name will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. All right, so a few things to point out. Verse 24, the reason why he uses a camel is this is the largest animal in Palestine at the time. Like this, this is like the largest animal any of these people may have ever seen. That's why they're using the example. Also, question for the literalist, do you think Jesus was talking about an actual needle and an actual camel? No? Okay, moving on. So <clears throat> when you see in verse 25, when you see the disciples and how they respond, that well, then who can be saved? This implies what I already talked about, which is that the disciples believe like everyone else, that if you were rich, you were already blessed like you already had salvation because god favored you so this is very very clear but for as we close out uh matthew 19 i really want to focus in on verse 30 but many who are first will be last and the last first guys this has got to be a terrifying scripture for well-off americans and the reason is, is because we, we live in a city that I, I talk about a lot. This is like highest cost of living in the state of Oklahoma, highest per capita income. Uh, Adam, you obviously, you deal with people's money all day, every day. You know exactly what people make and where they put their money and all these different things. And there are a lot of examples of rich people used as examples in the Bible as, hey, they got their blessings here. And so they got to live in opulence here. And it's not going to necessarily be the same for them in the next life. and. There are a lot of people that think because that they've bought into the lie 2000 years later that because they're so blessed that God favors them and perhaps they're not really a sinner. Like that's kind of where it ends up going is like, yeah, if I was really that bad, yeah, I'm a workaholic. Yeah. You know, I kind of drink too much or yeah, you know, I smoke weed every now and then or yeah, I've gone to Vegas and kind of got crazy and all those types of things. But look at how good my business is doing. Look at the O's I'm adding onto the end of my net worth. Look at all the stuff. Look at all the stuff that I own and all the cars and all the investment properties and all that. And then it's just like those things in and of itself are not bad. Obviously, they're not sinful because God is blessing you with things that you can leverage for his glory. But imagine that this rich young ruler, it's good. It's possible to assume that he wasn't very generous. 
because just the thought of selling all that he had to get rid of it to give to the poor like absolutely crushed him. And we don't know how that story ended up, right? Like we don't get an update on the rich young ruler sometime in Acts, right? Like we don't know what happened to this guy. But I will say when I read verse 30, it was the first time where I was like, ooh, for people that have a lot, like that's something that they're really going to have to reckon with and figure out where they land on it. I don't think it really comes down to you having what you have. I think it comes down to people who were blessed at this time thought they were blessed because their family was holding to the law. And their blessings were being given because they were so devout and holy. So that's like me looking upon a sinner. Like, you know, I, that's like me saying like, man, I've done all these good things. I'm doing all these great things. I believe I read my Bible every day. I go to church every Sunday, but look at this guy over here. He says he's a Christian, but he's not doing this, 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 and this, and I'm doing all this, this, and this. And, and God this. owes me now. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm going to be the first one in there and like, no, you think you're going to be first, but you're probably going to be last. Like it's, I think it's bringing some humbleness to these uh, Pharisees and these Sadducees and these rich people who think that because they're blessed means that they're holy. Well, and you just said it, right? Owed. It transitions the mindset from these are blessings to these are owed me. Yeah. Right? And I can't imagine God being more frustrated with somebody who he has blessed, who transitions to feeling like this, like I'm entitled to this. Mm -hmm. I manifest this. Like you're entitled to a certain level of opulence in your personal life because, again, I forget exactly what the statistic is, but I think if you make 35 grand a year, you're in the top one-tenth of one percent of wage earners on the planet. But we don't think about our wealth in America as compared to somebody in Zimbabwe. We think about ourselves in reference to our neighbor or that person that's in our Sunday school. And then we're always constantly striving for what the other person has. Similarly, how I mentioned earlier, where the Pharisees were posing a question to Jesus, Jesus answered it, and then there was a wheel screeching moment where the disciples piped up. It's the same thing in verse 25, when Jesus talks about the camel can't go through the needle, and in verse 25, the disciples, when they heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who can then be saved? Because that's the way the culture was. They're, They're completely shocked and astonished. How is this going to be possible? So, it's a little bit reassuring to me in verse 26 that Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. It is. It's not possible. But with God, all things are possible. So th- we can't do it ourselves. When isn't it so interesting? These guys have been walking around with Jesus for years at this point. And again, I'm not saying I'm better or smarter than the disciples. I'm just as dumb, if not dumber. They're just not getting it. And it's just like, well, and again, it's easy to connect the dots looking backwards. You get, it's impossible to connect them as you're walking forwards. But my goodness, how many examples have we just had in the, in the book of Matthew where it's like these dudes are missing the thread. They're missing the entire thing. You know, later on in Matthew, we, we see times where Jesus is like, no, I, I, I got to die, but don't worry. I'll, I'll come back like three days later. And these dopes didn't even remember that. Like yeah. three days later, they weren't even looking for him. And not to mention your homeboy, Peter, you know, right after Jesus gives this reassuring message that all things are possible, Peter decides to blurt out, well, we've left everything to follow you. What about yeah. us? Come on, man. Yeah. <laughs> what, what do I, when do I get mine? Oh, yeah. Man. When do I get what's owed? I think one thing we have to look at is like, you know, the culture and the time, you know, um, we got to look at what the Bible actually calls for us to do, like what God's law is, and then what these Pharisees and Sadducees were adding to that law at that time. So I think there was a lot of confusion because more, you know, like we talked about in past episodes, my, uh, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And there's probably still the mindset of that heavy yoke. Yeah. And again, just a reminder to everyone how dumb I am. 
It wasn't until about five seconds ago that I thought that was yolked, like egg yolk. <laughs> so again, when y'all think that I got it going on and I, I say nice things out of my face hole, remember that I thought he was talking about eggs until like this year. I was this many years old uh, whenever I realized that that was it. But guys, great discussion on Matthew 19, but we're going to have to leave it there. Guys, next week, come back here, ready to go, ready to talk about Matthew 20. So make sure you're read up. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. Adam Daunton Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So in the show notes today, I've got a link to everything that you need to get that stack of amazing books right there, the Forging Table Starter Set. And again, guys, we are a donation-based ministry. And so the overwhelming majority of how we were able to keep the lights on, the way that we're able to do stuff like this is because we have individuals stepping up on a one-time or mainly on a month-to-month basis, and they're helping us keep our operations going, keep the lights on, and keep us pushing so that we can equip men around the globe to push back darkness. So hop on board and be a part of the team. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And also we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Perpetual. Perpetua, which is off their self-titled debut album on Face Down Records. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>